Welcome to the podcast of ideas. Over the next few weeks and months, we'll be releasing audio from the Battle of Ideas Festival, which took place at the Barbican on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2019. The debate you're about to hear is called What Does It Mean to Be Normal? with Jane Sanderman as chair. Can you hear me? We on? Yeah. All right, well, thank you everyone for coming to the last session of the Battle of Ideas. Um, this session is What Does It Mean to Be Normal? I have to say, when I said to people I was chairing this session, people raised a quizzical eye, um, <laughs> which I don't know what that means. Um, but the discussion we're going to have is looking at, is it important to have a sense of what is normal today? How do we know what is normal? And is it a useful concept anyway? To investigate this topic, I have four brilliant speakers. Give them a, in, in the order they're speaking. So this is Dr. Frankie Anderson at the end here. She's a psychiatrist in South East London with a particular interest in working with adult affective disorders. Next to her is Dr. Beth Gilding, who is an academic at Goldsmiths University of London and is co-editor of Narrating the Passions, New Perspectives from Modern and Contemporary Literature. On this side, I have Dr. Ashley Frawley. She is a senior lecturer in sociology and social policy at Swansea University. She's the author of Significant Emotions and Semiotic <coughs> Happiness. And then, last but not least, I have Vanity Von Glow, who is an internationally ignored superstar, a cabaret performer, and host of the Vanity Project. Um, I will ask the speakers to speak for about five to six minutes, and then I will go out to the audience, and then hopefully <coughs> we can have a dialogue and discuss this topic and get some understanding of it. So, without further ado, Frankie. Good afternoon and, and well done to making it to the last um, session of the day. Um, as Jane said, my name is Frankie Anderson and I'm honoured to be amongst such an esteemed group of panellists. As a prelude to any discussion involving mental health, I would like to say I completely sign up to the concept of mental illness and the serious impact it can have on people's lives. Thomas says I am not. But that aside, I would like to focus in the next five minutes on the three following points. I want to deconstruct what we mean as normal, in the normative rather than the statistical sense, to focus on normal versus abnormal in the realms of mental illness in particular, and finally, to unpick what is problematic about the explosion in mental illness diagnosis and redefining disease as normal. In doing so, I'm going to start with Dolly Parton and end with Nietzsche. <laughs> I am not offended by all the dumb blonde jokes, because I'm not dumb and I know I'm not blonde. <laughs> Dolly Parton, 1970, quoted on the internet. Bear that in mind, because I want to deconstruct the word normal and what we now mean by normal, because I'm not sure I no longer know. In the past, it meant conforming to a standard, usual, typical, or expected. For Durkheim, it was the most frequent and persistent behaviours that persist through societies and through time. But as well as interpersonal, e.g. between others, it was intrapersonal, within the self. So in a sexually permissive society, one might expect to have a sexual partner before marriage. But if an individual was highly religious, had sworn not to have sex, and then went out and did so, it would be seen as a departure from their normal self. And the reason I've taken a minute to define what normal used to mean is because it's the standard by which we define abnormal. Abnormal behaviours, abnormal illness, and abnormal political views. Moving on now to mental health. So 16.9% of teenagers have a diagnosable mental illness according to government statistics. 
News stories tell us, however, that the real number may be much higher, to the point that ITV has started prompting us to talk to our families about mental illness between Coronation Street. I'm depressed, I'm on the spectrum, is now part of normal parlance. 4.4 million people in the UK are on antidepressants alone. One in four people will suffer a mental illness in their lifetime. If we are all ill, where normal is defined as conforming to a standard, is it now normal to suffer from a mental illness? And therein lies my problem. We are seeing a generation develop their identity through the prism of mental illness. And for me, that has four major consequences. The widening number of psychi psychiatric diagnoses reframes normal human emotions as abnormal. The definition of depression, according to the ICD, is low mood plus anhedonia, apathy, poor concentration, change in appetite, change in sleep patterns for two weeks. I won't ask you, but I don't know if anyone in this room has been dumped. Often, you will find that you have the emotions that are sadness, apathy, anhedonia, an increased intake of Ben and Jerry's. But I would not ask you to go and see your GP because this is a normal response to a normal situation. And by medicalizing this, you suggest that someone should always be happy and if they aren't, there's something wrong with that individual. The second issue I have with the whining creep of mental illness as a diagnosis, it becomes a bargaining chip in intersectional discussions. A diagnostic label takes on a political purchase and ultimately transforms mental illness from something to be overcome to another facet of one's identity, both changing the way we view ourselves and how we conduct politics through identity politics and victimhood. Thirdly, it changes our relationship from between each <coughs> other. So going back to me being dumped and eating the ice cream and picking up my friends, um, talk, picking up the phone to my friends, or, and so <laughs> whatever you do after getting drunk, um, you, you go to the doctor. And then you are, rather than that discussion occurring between you and your friends, it becomes between you and the state. Your validation is dependent on what the doctor says. And finally, my final point, is that it trans... By viewing yourself through the prism of mental illness that is your identity and not to be overcome, it ultimately sees the individual as fragile. It always, mental health is now always discussed in the concept of something that could reoccur. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a recovering depressive. I'm a, you're always in this fragile state that can be tipped into mental illness. In doing so, you undermine the tools that allow people to go out and engage with the real world. And so summing up and to turn to Nietzsche. To live is to suffer. To survive is to find meaning in that suffering. Thank you. Um, thank you, that was great. Uh, so, by coincidence, whilst I was writing my paper for today's panel, my two-and-a-half-year-old son began asking questions about normal. Uh, refusing to enter the bath because it had bubbles in it, uh, I said, that's normal. And he replied, what's normal? Uh, <laughs> Smart child. Yeah. And uh, I said, normal means not scary. It's something you don't have to worry about. And from this point, normal became a character in his bath time games. The bubbles are now called the normal, and they chase him. Uh, <laughs> get away from the normal, he yells. <clears throat> the normal is coming to get me. 
Um, now, this conversation got me thinking about the relationship between fear and normality. For my son, for whom few things are yet normal, so the bubbles are an abstract force. There's something that has to be overcome and assimilated into his consciousness, and he's doing this through play. What interested me, though, was that it wasn't enough for me to reassure him that this was normal. It was something that he had to come to understand himself. I can say it's normal, but until he's tested it, the normal is something being imposed on him. And this raised the question of why anything is normal and how it comes to be so. The definition, or first two definitions for normal in the Oxford English Dictionary are 1a, constituting or conforming to a type or standard, regular, usual, typical, ordinary, conventional. 1b, of a person physically and mentally sound, free from any disorder, healthy. Both of these definitions assume a kind of singular essence to normality, a sense that in and of itself, something that's normal is fixed and distinct from its opposite, abnormal, unconventional, unhealthy. And yet we know this is not the case, because as soon as we try to circumscribe what's normal, we find ourselves caught up in several layers of glaring contradiction. Insofar as every human is an individual and every individual is different, a constituent part of the definition of normality must be difference. But to be acceptably different and therefore normal, we must adhere to a collective set of beliefs which are agreed to be normal. To be accepted by society, we must, be, must adhere to a greater rather than lesser extent with that society's norms. But that society's norms differ by definition from another society's norms, which to them are normal, even though to me they are different. The definition of normal, then, hinges not on something being ordinary or regular, but rather on difference, on how it is ordinary or regular, but only in comparison to something else. Thus, thinking about our OED prototype for the normal individual who is physically and mentally sound, a question arises how possible this actually is and, and how much we even want that. Um, Freud would say not possible, not because we don't want it to be so, but because normal is always in negotiation on some level with what's not normal. Freud writes, normality is an ideal fiction. Every normal person, in fact, is only normal on average. His ego approximates to that of the psychotic in some part or other and to a greater or lesser extent. For Freud, then, being normal is not about not having any disorder, but how we negotiate between the psychotic that's in us and the normal that is, at least initially, outside of us. But in this light, the best we can hope for are positive negotiations on the side of normality. But a crucial component in these negotiations is an acceptance, an interiorization of normality. Freud continues, if the ego learns to treat the id's instinctual demands as external dangers, this happens because it understands that a satisfaction of instinct would lead to conflicts with the external world. Focusing on just one aspect of what Freud is saying for now, what begins to become clear is the process or timeline illuminated by Freud's model. Something doesn't become normal just because we are told that it is. It becomes normal once we accept and interiorize it as such. Normal, in this light then, has a history. It starts as being abnormal, something that is outside of us. And the same can be said for the concept of a scientific normal. Now, Thomas Kuhn spoke about this a lot in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is a fantastic, mind-changing book. Um, according to him, normal science, so that's experiments that uh, are conducted under the assumption of a given truth. So this pen drops to the ground because of a gravitational pull. That's a fact. And once we've accepted it as a fact, normal science operates around that fact so we can start to test 
gravity, you know, uh, how fast does this rock fall in comparison to a stone? That's normal science because it's operating around a fixed truth. But what happens then if that fixed truth is removed? So this would be, for instance, if somebody were to come up with a viable theory that was to say that gravity's not actually a thing and the reason this pen drops has nothing to do with gravity. And then they prove it to be true. Now, if such a thing occurs, according to Coombe, this is a paradigm shift. And during a paradigm shift, there is always a crisis that's relative to the size of the shift. And in that crisis, Kuhn writes, the proliferation of competing articulations, the willingness to try anything, the expression of explicit discontent, the recourse to philosophy and to debate over fundamentals are all symptoms of transitions in paradigms. And this continues, says Kuhn, until we assert normality again, until we find fixed truths. Now, this was the first thing that came to mind when I read today's blurb, which spoke about the proliferation of identity characteristics that encourage people to celebrate difference, uniqueness, and not being normal. And this on its own isn't actually the problem, I don't think. The problem we're dealing with, I think, is how in the fight for all of these identities to become normal instantly, the very understanding of normality in terms of how we conduct ourselves socially is being threatened. And so with the help of social media, these differences are becoming so multifarious and politicized that we can't keep up anymore and we feel under threat because of that. In this light, perhaps the only way forward is to remember that normal is something that takes time and necessarily moves through a period of questioning before it is internalized and normal, as normal and not as a threat. Forcing normal on people diverts it away from normal and into an imposition. In the words of my son, the normal is coming to get me. Oh boy, I agree with so much of what's been said, so I'm now trying to think without repeating people. So um, what's interesting today is that there's no, there's a lot of uncertainty about what is normal, right? It's sort of like, that's a question, what is normal anyway? You know, people will say, so there's no path that you can kind of go down that's set for you. There's this increasing uncertainty. I think Christopher Lash says in his book, Culture of Narcissism, that um, you know, most people throughout history didn't live as though they had one life to live. They lived as though they were living their parents' lives and their children's lives. So there was this sort of um, string that stretched back into the past, you could picture it. Uh, that people kind of were holding on to and that stretched forward into the future and that kind of told you who you were, right? So in the 11th century, you wouldn't have had an existential crisis. Like, you wouldn't have been like at around 1718, like, who am I? What is my place in the world? <laughs> you would have known that because you would have seen what your mother did or what your father did and that's the life that you would have lived. Now that string has been cut and we're sort of set loose in the world so that the ties to tradition are gone and the idea of what is normal, um, is less, we're less certain about that. And that uncertainty produces a number of interesting effects in society. So on the one hand, we try to codify normal. So it's a certain amount of predictability that allows this situation, this social situation, to hang together, right? We sit here, you sit there, you don't talk <laughs> until you're called on. Uh, and that allows this, this interaction to work. Um, but if we can't trust that people will follow those rules, then we may seek to try to codify that 
it is illegal for you to talk. We wouldn't do that because at least in this situation we know how to do that, but or we, we know what we're supposed to do. But when there's in areas where there's less certainty, like how should men relate to women, we start to try to codify that. It is not normal to speak to somebody who's a stranger. And then some people will say, well, that is normal, you know, to hit on a woman in the street. That's, that's fine, right? And they'll say, no. And it's not enough to just have it out. You want to codify that. You want to make sure that your values are the values of, of the broader society. So that's one sort of um, effect of this uncertainty. Another one is this weird sort of paradox of this proliferation of choices. Right, so in an, in an earlier session today, a young person stood up and said, everything I do, every aspect of my life is so fraught with difficulty. It's not about, well, I'll just have children. It's like, no, is having children a statement about your, your, about your uh, involvement in Extinction Rebellion or not? Or are you, are you, is it okay to have children because they're not going to survive the planetary catastrophe, perhaps? And then immediately after that, it was lunchtime, and this young woman was trying to figure out what sandwich to pick. And she goes, I don't know if I want to give up my veganism. You know, so even like that idea of, of what sandwich you pick. Is, is so fraught with meaning and difficulty. But at the same time as you have this sort of proliferation of choices, you have this paradox of, of um, a denial of responsibility in some sort of quarters of society, a denial of responsibility for those choices. That, free, that freedom that you have to choose what you're going to be um, could be really, really liberating, right? So I'm freer than I've ever been because I'm not born a peasant and dying a peasant, right? Within, you know, within modern society, what you're born as doesn't necessarily dictate how you're going to die. Um, and so we have this unprecedented freedom and we have this choice about who we become. But at the same time, these choices exist when we don't have a strong kind of subjectivity, a, kind, a strong kind of sense of, of the human actor that's capable of making those judgments and accepting the consequences for those judgments. So you wind up with this kind of... Um, this situation where the choices are biologized. So you can like pick from a huge range of genders, but if you say like that is my rational choice, I decide to live like that, it's like kind of beyond the pill. You say, no, I was born this way, right? Or you know, the idea that, uh, that homosexuality, I'm not saying that it is, I'm just saying the idea that homosexuality is a choice is just beyond the pale. Right? No, I was born this way, and that makes it okay. Well, why would it be wrong if it was a choice? You're kind of implying that it's the wrong choice. Um, and so I think what happened was this unprecedented freedom came at a time when, right after, you know, when we saw the results of human freedom, apparently, in the 20th century. Look what happened when human beings tried to direct the future. Look what happened when human beings were sort of standing on the edge of a cliff, right? Throughout human history, we always thought something would hold us back from destroying ourselves. The angels of our better nature, um, something would swoop in and stop us from toppling over the edge of the cliff. And then we had World War II, <laughs> the Holocaust, and good God, we were picking each other up and throwing each other over. And we realized that human freedom, that that was the lesson, unfortunately, that we took, that human freedom can lead us to utopia or it can lead us to Auschwitz. And unfortunately, it, left, it led us to Auschwitz. And that's the lesson that we took. So in that context, you have this desire to deny human freedom, to, or to deny that these choices are really my choices. It's not me, it's my biology, it's my parents, it's my genes, it's this or that. Um, and so I think that, that 
there's a powerful invitation in society to sort of reject those choices and reject the, the consequences of human freedom. And, uh, and that's a consequence of the loss of what it means to be normal and the loss of tradition, something that's just given to you. Thank you. <coughs> yes. I'm so pleased that I'm going last because now I can plagiarize everyone's <coughs> ideas. Um, I shan't uh, be quoting Nietzsche, although I did think that Frankie was infringing in my territory by quoting Dolly Parton. Um, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I have no professorial approach uh, to any of this. Um, actually, I'm a drunk, and um, this is probably the first time I've had a microphone in front of me and shan't be singing Celine Dion, so... Um, but it is interesting to me as a cultural observer, which I consider myself to be, uh, to see the way in which normalcy, perhaps more ephemeral than ever, uh, is in many ways the source of the anxieties that we've heard described today, and particularly well by Ashley. Thank you, Ashley. Um, I did uh, worry for that poor woman with the anxiety over the vegan sandwich. Of course, I have the answer, uh, which is cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the uh, Belgian uh, therapist Esther Perel described that because relationships now are so defined by the ability to choose from a buffet of options, uh, that you can have uh, polyamory, you can negotiate hall passes so that you can have different arrangements with your partner, um, this uh, leads to a system in which in relationships we are all constantly negotiating the terms of everything all the time. And I think that's what you're describing with, with, the, with the vegan sandwich situation. Um, you know, we all get, uh, what is it called, um, decision-making anxiety. This is why Barack Obama had people to choose his suits for him. Because, you know, whether or not to uh, carpet bomb Israel was preoccupying him and he'd rather have someone else choose his uh, suits. Uh, my suit, I chose myself uh, today. Um, so uh, I do worry. I worry about the idea that with, because I think that we know that uh, certainly young people today are char characterized as being more anxious than ever, or certainly they might be more anxious than ever, but they like to tell us that they're more anxious than ever. Um, and I, I worry that the diagnostic approach to that, where every teenager uh, has an anxiety disorder, uh, they're not just shy or a little socially awkward, they kind of have an attached group membership by their diagnosis. I worry that that encourages children, young people, to believe that their value has to be connected to their membership to uh, an external group. And I think that normalcy in that instance is a low aspiration, um, and it's certainly an ill-fitting standard to give young people for acceptance. Um, it shouldn't maybe come as a surprise that I... I like weird people, um, and I, I do wish sometimes that we had this spirit of the defiance of 80s punk rock, you know, back when people were facing harder times, arguably, than they are now in this country, certainly, but there was a defiance and a self-confidence to their deviation from norms, and they weren't trying to pursue the sort of, uh, the, the norms of the time. Um, also, uh, the defiant attitude and approach of artists like Barbara Streisand and Shirley Bassey, the people that I've always loved have sort of dripped in self-confidence. And I don't know that that's necessarily the same, uh, the same type of creative inspirations that young people have today. Um, when we think of how many millions of YouTube subscribers the likes of Zuella had, I and mean, she is a talking anxiety attack. 
The idea of the normal chasing me. Well, I mean, that's exactly right. You know, the, the, the increased anxiety and then increased, an increasingly anxious times, people do want codified norms. They want rules. I don't think it's helpful for us in society to have people that lack the conviction and confidence of... Uh, I mean, I think it's in the interests uh, of the people who our anxious teenagers claim are our oppressors. It's within the oppressor's interest for us all to be anxious and terrified all the time, because then they can impose uh, in rules and stuff that we don't like. That's oh, that's my time. Up. Well, good, because I think I've run out of things to say. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, over to you. Uh, I've got a question. Um, do you think there's a difference between the private normal and the public normal? You know, as a foreigner living in England, I think many of the things you do here are freaking weird and abnormal. <laughs> but that's my problem. You know, what you eat for Christmas doesn't bother me. You shouldn't. But, but there are also things that do bother me. You know, you build houses for hobbits, and I think that's also abnormal. And I. You know, and you should change it. So what's the difference between private normal, public normal? Okay, get a chap at the front here. Um, I'd like to quote uh, Muriel's wedding. Good. I, I think they tell the main character, you're not normal, and that is why she gets excluded. And I think that's a big problem for people. Uh, they want to be normal, hence average, which, no, we don't aspire to be a lot of us. Uh, we want to be above average, but we also want to be accepted uh, by others um, and not excluded. And I had a friend who uh, was bipolar, uh, and it was incredibly difficult to contact, to be in contact with him at times because he would constantly send me lots of message emails, messages on WhatsApp, phone me all the time, and I tried to use the argument, which is probably not the best way to do it. And this is not normal. But it was kind of, then he would just accuse me of kind of like basically oppressing his individuality. And, oh, you just want everyone to be the same. It's like, no, it's stressing me out, you know. And, uh, you know, it's like, I accept your difference, but I also, you know, have to think of, you know, my own ways. And I think there are sort of limits. And, you know, to observe being at this uh, festival, which is great, my normal is that you don't interrupt other speakers and you have some manners and politeness and no one to shut up. Yes, I am going to stop talking in a moment. Um, but you know, that's, those are kind of my limits of you know, definitely not interrupting people. But for a lot of people here, you know, and uh, you know, I've seen it a lot, it's normal, but it's normal, like normal to just interrupt and shout. Um, so I think it's good to have some normal but we need to also allow for some difference. Uh, I'm not going to quote any singers. I haven't got that <laughs> knowledge of any singers. But three, three different points, which hopefully there's some sort of common thread to it. So one about language. So I, I think what I've observed is somebody who's maybe older than the average person over here in his 40s. So um, is that words like normal, interesting, nice, that sort of lost all meaning. But if, I remember when I was in the teens, they could have had meaning. Interesting, actually. It seems to me now seems to be boring. Nice seems to me the opposite of nice. And normal means something something really different, almost average. I mean, who wants to be average? So I think there's something about language here which I think is interesting. Um, I think the bit about um, labelling conditions and the medical industry labelling them and turn them into a condition, which turns them into drugs. Um, I, I think that's just, just, just capitalism gone them haywire. 
and that's doctors, uh, doctor friends, who have seven minutes to see a patient. What else are they going to do? They haven't got time to get into the kind of nuts and bolts of what's happened for that individual. And that's about the farming industry having a lot of power. And that's our own governments not doing what they should be doing to hold the farmer companies to, to account. So I think that's a slightly different point. I think my final point is about it's way more complicated now, I think, to beat somebody in their, in their teens or 20s. And that's you know, the, vegan, uh, the, 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 the vegan example. Um, in order to negotiate, and I have a couple of points from me. I think one would be, um, it was a very interesting discussion yesterday about social media and where these sort of lines and boundaries are there. And I think we have turned everything that used to be private into becoming, into becoming public. So I think we, it's all very well to point the finger at Facebook, but I think there's an individual responsibility over here as well. If we, if we don't like the world that we are creating by making everything public, it's up to us to withdraw from those certain public channels because then maybe our sense of um, self might be, might be improved compared to now. And I think secondly, maybe the, the, the real point I'm making is that certainly in the West, and I think it's probably in a contrast to China or India, which are more um, cohesive societies perhaps, that perhaps we are in an era where it's more about the celebration of, of the individual, and that's just the era that we're in, because I don't see that actually changing. So perhaps the concept of normal isn't really a relevant concept anymore. It's just about what makes you an individual. Thank you. Um, so I'll come back to the panel. There definitely seems to be this discussion about what is private normal and public normal, and is there a difference? And perhaps where I'm thinking that is in the family, in which I think there used to be more potentially an uh, aspect of eccentricity in the family, and the family, and there was a trust in the family in, in some ways that individuality of the family was uh, allowed to be. And now I think in the family, a lot of parents are anxious, am I treating my children in a normal way? There seems to be a lot of pressures in saying, this is the way you must parent, this is the way, you know, if you don't bring your child up in this way, if you do not um, read your child 15 minutes every day. There seems to be so much more prescription within something that used to be maybe a more private, eccentric area, but you can take any of um, the issues, but the public-private seems to be coming up. So, Well, I feel bad for the eccentric uncle who might have disappeared in modern times because now he's a racist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned that normalcy has become a source of anxiety. I, I don't think, it doesn't have to be that way. I think that at heart, this, this freedom that we have to kind of choose that, that exists when what it means to be normal becomes uncertain, uncertain is experienced as a kind of anxiety because we don't really have a strong vision of a human subject that is capable of dealing with that freedom and, and rationally deciding, okay, I'm going to live like this and I'm going to accept responsibility for that. And we don't expect other people to be able to live in that freedom either. This uncertainty and distrust leads to, I think, attempts to regulate private life as well. Because if you don't believe that human beings are within their nature, rational and so on, freedom isn't an aspiration, it's a problem. It's something that needs to be regulated. And so we have this desire to go into people's private lives and kind of regulate their, their families and so on out of this anxiety that certain groups have in society that what their values are, their norms are, aren't widely held, things that they want to normalize, right? And so they, they will codify that within, by using the law, for instance, to criminalize smacking kids or whatever uh, in order to say this is not normal, even though the vast majority of people do it, uh, and, and you have to live by my values. So that's that, that sort of anxiety and distrust in the human subject that leads to that impulse to reject freedom and to regulate it. 
Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm I, I, trying to get a handle on all of the questions. I think this, um, this thing of private normal and public normal, I think there's a, there's a paradox here, which is that it doesn't matter how many times you post on social media about your private life. I mean, it, it just doesn't matter. You will not get rid of that private life. There is always a life that is off social media, that we're constant. well, not we, but that we see constantly trying to be exteriorised, trying to be put out there into the world and so, so as to become normal. The private life, I fully believe, I'm fully Freudian in this, is not normal. The private life is a, <laughs> is a negotiation with normal. You know, that, that's... I think the way it is, I think all of us could say that when we're on our own, we're not necessarily thinking what we would think to be normal thoughts. You know, lots of, lots of things go on up there, and if it all becomes normal, then that's, I think that's, that's not ideal either. I think the, the, coming back to this really important point about labelling and diagnosing and medicalising, I mean, yes, I'm a Freudian, but absolutely not on board with this massive rise in diagnoses of mental health conditions, because I think what it does is it, it's a part of identity politics, and it's the, one of the most insidious and dangerous mm. parts of identity politics is that it freezes identity. The moment that I say now that I am depressed, I take that diagnosis, and I, if you just listen to the language, we say I am depressed or I am anxious in a way that we would never say for instance, and I'm not trying to be inflammatory, but we would never say, I am cancer. We don't want to own a diagnosis like that, a diagnosis that is fatal. And yet, these diagnoses that people are inhabiting are, at their worst, and I'm sure you will be able to say more about this if you want to, are fatal. These are not, I, these are not things that we, we should be aspiring to be. Yes, we should have more discourse about the nature of mental health, but no, I don't think this should be something that we are that we want to be. We shouldn't want to be this in the way that we shouldn't want, well, maybe we do, but that's a whole different conversation. We shouldn't want to be unwell. I'm, I'm going to come back to that point because I think it's really important. Um, to answer your question, I absolutely do not want everyone to be normal. I think the rich diversity in life comes from the eccentricities. It comes from those who like to play Dungeons and Dragons versus those who want to do a Barry's class at 4am on a Sunday morning. You know, I think the paradox is that with this increased labelling and this increased kind of fossilisation, we we become more and more entrenched in silos. So in the past, you might be slightly weird, you might be a bit eccentric, but it would be accepted. It would be seen as, you know, that person's a little bit odd, but you know what, they're part of our community. Now it's, I wonder if they're on the autistic spectrum disorder. Why, why, do you, why do you wonder that? Well, because he can't communicate properly. There are people on the autistic spectrum disorder, and there are people who can't communicate properly. And that is an... And, and, and my, com my problem with that is, and this comes back to your point, Beth, is that once you start putting a label on it, the world around you changes. So, and I see this particularly in universities, so people want to make adaptations for anxiety. And anxiety can be an absolutely crippling and destructive condition, but what you do not do in, in it is avoid stuff. So you do not, you have to go, it sounds paradoxical and it sounds cruel, but you have to go into the environment that makes you anxious. Because otherwise you just reinforce the anxiety and you just stay at home. 
And you're not living life. If you stay in a closeted world at home, you aren't engaging with the outside world. You're not making friends. You're not finding partners. You're not going and you're not um, fulfilling your potential. And so you now, I have this... There is a generation who say, I, I'm too anxious to go outside the front door. I'm too anxious. And, and it, it's very odd because it's like... It's almost like an existentialist anxiety about but without an understanding of it being existentialist so it's just like we are now all just anxious mm. what does that mean what what are we anxious about some people can pinpoint it so i have children who come and say i've got eco anxiety and they and they have genuine suicidal thoughts because they are told that in i don't even know when 2030 the world's going to end and i'm like I don't even know what I'm doing for dinner. Like, I have, like, I have no time to be one, worrying about the world. But actually, if you sit down and listen to this stuff, it's anxiety-provoking, but there's nobody there containing it. There's nobody... So we're all anxious about everything and nothing. And I just, I just, it's just such a strange environment to live in. And it's all done... It's all, this entire discussion is had through diagnostic labels. Mm. So the biggest change I've seen is children coming into the room with a, di I am depressed. I have, oh, well, well, that's very interesting. How do you, you know, how do you know that in a more, less patriotic, um, patronizing way? I saw it on the internet. Okay, that's not depression. No, it is, no, it's not. It's, you know, and it becomes this kind of, life is a, I hate to be all bleak about it, but life is a struggle. There are good bits, there are bad bits, but it's not all good. And I think if you then start labelling the bad bits as a medical problem, then we are in so much trouble because you're not going to do anything. And that is my real concern yeah. with this generation. Yeah. Can I jump in on that? Uh, no. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay, at the top, there's a lady. So um, the question is directed for Vanity, but uh, y'all can uh, chime in if you want. Vanity, I'm a huge fan. You look exceptionally fabulous tonight. Um, I'd like to ask about um, uh, how drag challenges what it is to be normal um, and gender norms, obviously. But um, I mean, so drag, like when you're in drag, obviously, that uh, you're presenting, you know, fe what female forms are supposed to look like and all that. But even just the act of dressing up in women's clothing is, is a very controversial topic. And but. May, may have been previously, but now we're seeing the rise of drag coming into the, in, into the mainstream. They've ruined it. And I think that's an absolutely amazing thing. Um, so yeah, just want to get your perspectives on that. And, uh, and also, how your political policies, per perhaps, uh, how that may have been considered not normal within the drag community. Gentlemen in the check shirt along, yeah. Panels quite a bit about the way that, um, slightly abnormal health conditions have been pathologised and medicalised a lot. I wonder if there's anything to say about the way that slightly abnormal political opinions have also been treated to the same pathologisation. For it seems for almost every major issue that we face today, there is a sort of orthodoxy, um, and people who go against that in a way, in a slightly heretical way, often find themselves the victims of pathologisation the same way that people do with medical questions. So if you say, for example, dispute the um, Extinction Rebellion claims about the state of the climate, you might be called a climate denier, and then you're sort of treated as if you're mentally ill or something. 
people who are critical of aspects of Islam as a religion, and sometimes called Islamophobes, and there's a phobia developed there, and some people who are questioning of gay marriage in churches, for example, are called homophobes. I mean, these aren't views that I hold personally, but I wonder if the panel had anything to say about the way that abnormal politics is also being pathologized in the same way as medical conditions. One of my big worries as a parent of an 18-year-old daughter is that it started back when she was six and she came home telling me she'd been bullied, so she was a victim of bullying, and she'd been right on trend all the way through. Uh, she's now just started at university, it's not going great, and um, she is down patently, but what I don't know is, is she depressed? Because this is what I'm being told. Now, I'm old enough and I've been through, you know, periods of depression, as it used to be in the olden days. Yeah. I'm 60, actually. <laughs> I've been here about 20 years. So I understand what that is, mm. you know, as it used to be defined. Mm. And I am panic-stricken, really, because I don't know if she is telling me that she is depressed by the old-fashioned definition of it or the current trend for it. Because actually, it's normal to be depressed. It's actually not normal not to be depressed as a team at this point in time, pretty much. Um, it is what I'm kind of finding amongst her and her friends. You know, it's not normal not to be depressed. Uh, I think the thing about normal, though, is it's an intergenerational relationship because it the de what was normal, you know, as a young person, you rely on an idea of normality from coming from the people before you, and I think there's a, there is an interruption in that relationship and there's a, um, a delegitimising of what older people might have to say, uh, and that isn't like punk. Uh, that's not like a punk challenge of, of older generations. It's something much more destructive where there's a sense that there's nothing that can be said. You just don't understand the world. And we have this very, very highly dramatised sense that everything's changed. Um, so I, it's really difficult to know uh, how we, uh, on the one hand, get a handle on what really has changed and what is actually moving very, genuinely moving very, very fast, what's being institutionalised and speeding up the process of the adoption of new ways of thinking and new categories of thought and new understandings of our ways of being. But on the other hand, that actually loads of things are just really the same and that things move very slowly. So actually having kids is really not that different to what it's ever been um, in, so, in lots of respects. You know, falling in love is, is really quite similar. Um, you know, it, there's lots of things that are just that continue, so that trying to find a sensible orientation towards continuity and change does rely on people being embedded or re-embedded in relationships with actual generations people. But I mean, it's interesting about the university one because that does you get stories and stories of people going to university now, and I think the whole mental health issue in universities is in, increasing in the sense of that understanding. And I, I just think if anyone who's gone to university for the first year, it is you are homesick. You know, it has always been a very difficult time, but now there does seem to be a, a codification of that. But any of the questions, they were all brilliant. I think the questions. So, anyone wanting to start? Shall I start? Um, I'm. Going to abstract your your point about your daughter because obviously she you know she can go and see her GP. There is help available, and talk about that. And I think that's the thing I really struggled to get 
a handle on is what is sadness and what is depression. And I think this is very reflective of the change in, in language, actually. So what, interestingly enough, people don't say, God, I feel a bit schizophrenic today. So there are certain mental illnesses that appear to be more socially acceptable. Okay, and I can't quite, I don't quite work out what that is. I, it appears to be things around depression or anxiety, something that, or, or actually, I think, although this is a difficult area, touching on self harm, mm. there's a real epidemic on self harm now in young people, and it's not quite clear what's driving that. Is it a real level of, so when you talk about self harm in psychiatry, you talk about it as an expression of distress. So it's not about the self harm, it's about what the self harm means to the individual. But now, it's not quite sure what it means to the individual. Does it mean to the individual about distress? Does it mean to the class to symbolize their involvement with Because we know that self harm occurs in pockets. Is it a form of communication? Like, it's very difficult to. Ch and because there has been this medicalization of language, whoever brought up the point about language as well, is that now it's lost its meaning. So we don't know what is sad and we don't know what is depressed and we don't know what is anxious and we don't know what is worried. And, we, and, and the problem is, is then the tendency is if you're a psychiatrist, if you walk around with a hammer, all you see is nails, right? So you're going to treat everyone like they're depressed. You're going to treat everyone like they're anxious because all the people I see are ill. So the assumption is if someone, someone comes through the wall, um, door is that they're going to be psychiatrically ill. Well, uh, well, are they? And I think this is particularly problematic when I think about when I worked in Mansfield. I don't know if anyone is here from Nottinghamshire. There was a huge sway. Only one-fifth... Was, this was ten years ago. So only one-fifth of the population that could work did work. And I don't know if you know Mansfield, but it's an ex-mining village in Nottinghamshire with extreme levels of deprivation. And the reason why nobody worked was because the mines went. There was no alternative form of employment at that time. There was a surge in what we call pink-collar work, so women went into, into the workforce, but the men didn't. And we know that... Um, unemployment is one of the major risk factors for depression. And yet I had four-fifths of a population, the majority of which were off with depression and mental illness. Now, that is not a psychiatric problem. That is an economic and social problem. And I think the problem is, is that we are now reframing political problems through the lens of medicalization because we don't have the politics to deal with it we don't have the faith in politics to deal with it so instead we say here you go take your 20th citalopram and i'll see you in two weeks and if it gets worse please call the crisis line actually you know get into a job engage with people have an identity outside oneself be part of a social network and you might find that all these depressive symptoms start to lift um, and that's my real concern about this push for abnormality, is it sells people short. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just, just following on from that, I think what we have in, uh, working in higher education, um, what we really see is a kind of wide-scale distrust of any kind of authority now, and this comes back to this point over here, of it being kind of intergenerational, 
that it's not just that we find, and this is not all young people, that goes without saying, but it's not just that we find that young people aren't kind of, aren't trusting their teachers not to be racist or to be sexist or to be sexual predators, etc. but they're not trusting their parents. They're not trusting people that are supposed to represent them. They don't trust the politicians, but what they do trust is the science. Mm. That's, that seems to be where a lot of this is hooked, is where can I put my trust right now? What is it? that everyone else seems to agree is, is the correct thing. And right now, science is what they're relying on. And that, I think, is massively problematic. In terms of, I mean, if anyone was at the panel I spoke on yesterday, I'll be repeating myself, but um, curiosity. One of the things that I really find with a lot, of this, a lot of the young people that I work with, and it's, I think, one of the really big cause factors of this mental health crisis, so-called mental health crisis, is a distinct lack of curiosity, a lack of the sense that being curious, going out into the world, speaking to people you never met before, speaking to people who you disagree with, watching things that make you question your own kind of beliefs and whether or not that's a good thing. This is, this is how you grow as a person. You don't grow by being labelled. That is, yeah. you know, that's exactly how you get shut down. <clears throat> And yeah, the, this point about what's sad and um, what's depressed and what's... And I think what we're not saying to young people enough because we're worried about the backlash, and it is a real worry, a professional worry when you're working in HE, is that it's normal to be sad fairly often, actually. It's normal to, you know... And when I say sad, I'm not talking about crying in private in your own, on your own, but kind of looking around and being a bit like, well, what, what am I going to do next? How do I get myself out of this? And it's the moment you get yourself out of it, that's when you start to feel like, actually, I can do this and I've got that resilience. But curious, they need to be curious. Everyone needs to be curious. I'm sick of people not being curious. I'm angry about it. I, I, I want to pick up this point about um, medicalization. And people will say, like, oh, and then it leads to these drug things and these pharmaceutical companies. I actually don't have that much of a is an issue with drug treatments. Um, I, I think, as a consenting adult, if I don't want to feel sadness for a little while, I, could, I should be able to take a drug. <laughs> I don't know why I should have to then, you know, buy into this label that I have an illness and then get a drug for it. I should be able to be free to do that. What I actually have a problem with is this, this sort of league, this ever-proliferating class of quasi-experts whose bread and butter it is to sow the seeds of uncertainty about what is normal. Um, and whose life purpose is the never-ending problem of the self. So mm. I was actually talking to, I had a debate with a woman who was like a trauma expert or something, and she was like positively giddy about this idea that, um, so it was about the smacking ban in Wales, uh, in Scotland, and she was giddy that there was this whole new class of people who we could now redefine as traumatized because their parents had smacked them as children. Um, and so I, I, that's the, what I have a problem with, and I think that's actually driving a lot of this uncertainty, is that there, you know, there's this problem in the world that you had no idea existed before, but I'm, you know, I'm, my job is to raise awareness of the fact that you are truly a victim, that you, are, you truly have this, uh, this sadness within you you didn't know you had. And I agree with what you're saying, we've lost the ability, the, the language to talk about social problems in any other way except in, through this problem of the self. And so all, all problems ultimately count, come down to individuals and their behaviors and choices. Mm. So choice becomes not something incidental to who you are, you know, just 
a choice that you make. Like the, the choice about a sandwich becomes sort of like fraught with all, the, all this meaning because the problem of society has become the problem of the self. I'll, I'll, I'll answer the lady who spoke first because uh, I know you were uh, asking me a little bit about my life and I am an expert in that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought it was funny that you were asking about my political policies because I don't um, have policies. Um, but of course I work in an area in which to some extent orthodoxies are challenged. Um, and so I could be described, I suppose, as uh, being a heterodox performer in that regard, which I find amusing because I've never been a hetero anything until, <laughs> until that recent revelation. Uh, when I started performing doing this, it was 11 years ago, so I was very uh, much doing it by myself in Scotland, in Glasgow. And, um, and so I, I say to friends who've been, doing, who've been performing within a provocative field uh, for the same length of time as me, that when we were doing this, um, you kind of had to be robust in order to do it. You know, I used to live in the Gorbals in Glasgow, and if I couldn't get a taxi to get to my gig, I would walk across the Albert Bridge into the Merchant City and woe betide any erstwhile Glaswegian who might verbally abuse me um, because I'm not intimidated. Um, whereas, as you may know, uh, some of you that have younger kids, like the number one interest of the time right now, the zeitgeist, is defined by the identity... Um, obsessed world of drag and so young kids today love drag and are doing drag makeup in their bedrooms and watching RuPaul's Drag Race and going out in drag but none of them uh, necessarily have the vocation for it because they're being endorsed by the fact it's a fashion and a movement whereas for people uh, some of my friends uh, who are of, of my sort of contemporaries, you kind of had to be quite robust. And so at the moment, the appeal of drag to me appears to be that in a world where young people get to create selves on social media, drag is a way that they get to create a superhero version of themselves that they can put forward into the world. And that's fine, uh, but I like to think that my performance has never been about my own personal therapy in that way. Um, <laughs> It's interesting as well, I think you asked roughly about how my, uh, my position on certain things politically might be unusual uh, for a, a performer, actually possibly for a performer across the board. Um, that is to say that I am fairly close to being a free speech absolutist, um, which it surprises me that less performers hold that kind of view. Uh, given that I think art is stronger when it's unfettered. But I do think that a fascinating thing happened. I used to live with a drag queen called Bag of Chips. <laughs> and she is on this current series of RuPaul's Drag Race UK. And uh, having lived with her, I can tell you that she is blue right down her heart. She is a conservative voter. And the backlash before she went on, and here I'm breaking her confidence, but, um, oh, fuck her. Uh, <laughs> I was astonished. That she even did an article in one of the gay magazines saying why she was voting for Theresa May in 2016. And, and did this whole U-turn publicly right before the series aired because her view was considered unacceptable for a drag queen to support the Conservative Party under any auspices. Never mind, she, she, did, she did admittedly say it. it was the only time she voted for Theresa May. It was all around Brexit stuff. And, um, and it was astonishing to me that that view was deemed to be unacceptable, abnormal, and she had to release some ridiculous statement saying she'd never voted Tory, like she was being cowed into 
uh, you know, watering herself down for people like that, um, which I think is sad. Um, and she'll be sad that I've brought it up today. <laughs> um, so that sort of speaks to the gentleman over there asking what views are normal and what views are abnormal. I think that's one of the problems when we try to limit free expression. It's not just about whether or not the law limits free expression, but I believe that the value of free speech should be something that we encourage people to hold as a personal value, because when you don't, uh, people get lazy with it, and then you end up where people have one public opinion, and then they have one yeah. private opinion, and boom, surprise, Brexit happened. Well, you know, people didn't feel like they were able to tell pollsters what they were going to vote for. So we end up with a less honest society, and I don't think that's helpful either. Lady there, yeah. Sort of norms in psychiatry, um, and I think it's really good to be critical of those. Um, I think uh, homosexuality was in the DSM until like the 1970s, um, but I also think labels can be really important, um, and I think they can be. I think like in the past, and um, what well, obviously now still, um, <coughs> mental illness is hugely stigmatised. I think labels can actually be a way of, of um, kind of moving away from that. Um, I think particularly there's been a lot of talk about am I sad or am I depressed, but I think in the past there's been a lot of people who have been depressed and have been just told of sort of chin up or particularly man up. Um, and I think labels can be really important in that. And there's also been some, um, I wanted to sort of question what you said earlier about mental, um, the proliferation of mental illness, meaning that sort of we're more fragile, obviously more fragile, and I wonder whether that has to necessarily be the case. Also, um, you were talking about um, how sort of labels mean that we identify more with things, so like, um, like I'm impressed rather than sort of I am, but I wonder whether the problem is stigma rather than the label, because um, like depression can have a diagnostic criteria just as cancer can, but the mm. reason it's perceived differently is perhaps more sort of stigma rather than the label itself. Okay. I was wondering if there would be a case to be made for normalizing with a small n, anxiety, something like anxiety with a small a, as opposed to pathologizing it. And I give the example that a few years ago, when my son was in his second year at university, he called me just before midterms. In kind of a panic, um, you know, pressured speech that you would expect of someone who was having a panic attack or whatever. And as someone who had previously worked in mental health, I was, you know, a little bit concerned. But as I listened to him explain what was going on, what had happened is that, you know, he kind of got a little behind in his work. He had a lot to do, he had exams, he had papers to write. And he'd been talking to friends who were feeling the same way. And of course, they'd all Googled their symptoms and decided that they had anxiety with a capital A or ADHD because they couldn't really focus on one piece of work at a time. And I had to remind him that, you know, this was perfectly a perfectly normal way to feel um, for someone who had let, gotten a little bit behind in his work. And so we talked through these very practical strategies of how to break down the workload in the amount of time that he had to do with it. And so at first he was like, well, you know, I really think I should make an appointment at the mental health clinic. And I had to sort of, you know, control myself from buying into that and saying, no, actually what you need to do is write down and make yourself a list of what you need to get done this week how much time you have to do it in, and just accept the fact that sometimes in life, things pile up and you don't feel very good. We feel worried, you're gonna feel a bit distressed, and that's just, that is in fact a normal way to feel. And if you 
didn't feel that way with all of this work piled on your head, that would be abnormal. And sure enough, he broke down his workload, and over the next few days, as he got through it, lo and behold, and so it was a real lesson to him and to some of his friends, because they did talk about it, that you know there was nothing pathological about the way they were feeling. It was, hey, I felt like that when I was in that situation. I felt anxious 10 minutes ago when I was thinking how to frame my comment here. It's a perfectly normal way to do things. And I think you know there's a difference between pathologizing things and then breaking down the everyday feelings that are often negative and uncomfortable and saying, yeah, those are normal and it's totally fine to feel that way. Yeah, and put it to the mic to the gentleman next to you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to raise a, a more sort of basic question about the concept of normality to see whether it helps the discussion, which is to do with functioning. So if you look at the idea of, uh, I mean, contrast the, the concept of statistical meanings with the idea of normality. Everybody agrees upon reflection that left-handedness is statistically deviant, but it's not normal, because left hands can do as well as right hands what hands are for. Now, in the olden days, it were, people said that homosexuality was deviant because it was a misuse of the inbuilt teleology, inbuilt natural function of human sexuality, which is biologically defined to have children Family. Nobody thinks now that people having sex are obliged, or Catholic Church does, but not that people having sex are obliged to aim to have children. And so that particular definition of sexual that the goal of sexuality no longer applies. With the transgender stuff, it gets more confused because it's difficult to say what, to what our gender identity is, such a term, is for. Now, I, I don't think you want to defend this idea of normality in terms of function, but I wonder whether it's a good and useful place to start if we try to define normality. So in psychiatry particularly, it's a fascinating concept. What is, what is, what is mental illness? Mm. I mean, it's a philosophical question, really. Yeah. What is mentally ill? Because well, a rough opening shot might be, it's a failure of function, not of the body, but of the person. It might have a biological thing, but it's a failure of function of the person. To which the question is, well, what is it to function properly as a person? Yeah, exactly. asking, what is it to eat too much? What is it to drink too much alcohol? Well, you could say, the answer to those questions is that eating or drinking too much impedes your proper functioning as a person, which obviously raises the question, what is proper functioning? I don't have the answer, but I think that's a beautiful place to start. I think that's what does it mean to be normal. what Ashley was saying about codifying things, because I'm very sympathetic to the idea that we shouldn't rush to codify uh, things that uh, you know, make us feel uncomfortable. Um, but at the same time, um, we've discussed about depression and sadness, and we are frequently sad because life is bloody disappointing. <laughs> and as a reaction to that, in the past, we've found ways of codifying um, other things to, as a way of making life a bit less disappointing and less difficult. Uh, so for instance, what I'm thinking about is we've, we've lost that will to codify certain areas. At work, um, I work in HR, I collude with uh, management who want to show some sympathy to people who are you know, driving to and from hospital to look after a loved one, 
or dealing with the um, after effects of uh, 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 bereavement, you know, even the practical things of sorting through, um, you know, the, the loved one's um, objects and things like that. We collude to give them sick leave and we tell them to go and get a note saying they're stressed. And I, I think there is a need to, to think about what we've lost in that, um, you know, codified for those situations so that we have, you know, policies, we have leave, we, we have workers saying, this is just ridiculous. Mm. These are normal human situations and uh, we should be having paid leave for it. Mm. Great. And there's two people in white. I'm interested in how uh, the development of policing each other's behaviour has vastly increased the more we as a species have been able to communicate with each other. I mean, in ancient Greece, it was encouraged for men to be bisexual because it was considered more masculine. And, you know, King Edward IV was very openly bisexual because the people of England didn't really know who their king was. They had no, they had no way of knowing, but it seems to be that the more we've developed things like even radio and television and media, um, people have been able to look at each other to try and figure out what's normal. Like women shaving their legs in America became normal because of magazines. They thought you should do this, and so women thought, oh, well, if it's normal, then I have to do it. And it's interesting that now we're trying to break free of this, uh, of some of this policing of sexuality and gender, but we're still policing how we communicate with each other regarding sexuality and gender. Um, I think the, the very fact that we call it mental health is quite problematic because it kind of suggests that your mental state is, is a medical state. So, um, and it also suggests like any deviation from like a perfect mental state is like deemed unhealthy. So like if language and rhetoric is so important, um, what can we do to demedicalize the issue, especially when mental health is like such a widely used term? So what I find a lot is that when uh, young people talk about mental health, it becomes quite competitive. Like I'm more hurt than you, I'm more hurt than you, um, and it seems they can only meet each other at a point of maximum vulnerability and have stopped being able to have um, interactions where they support each other in asymmetrical ways. So, for example, my friend at the moment needs uh, support because she's having a tough time with finding jobs. I've got to be strong for her and help her out. Um, and, yeah, I've got to be like, robust for her, be strong for her. And by being strong, I dispense advice to her, which then most often I need myself. So how can we teach, how can we encourage young people to give help as well as Think. having to accept it the whole time or needing help the whole time? Very good, thanks. So um, I'm going to go to the panel. They will sum up in the way they started. One minute, guys. Oh, my God. Thank you. Oh, oh, my God. Okay. I'm going to make several points first. Um, so I think what I would say is I think that the mental illness crisis is a reflection of the development of identity politics. So I think it, to have a... To have a mental illness is not a pleasant state of mind, okay? I work with people who are mentally ill. I've 
see them, I see people on a day-to-day -day basis, okay, you would not want to be mentally ill. But the problem is, in, a, in an intersectional world, having a mental illness gives you purchasing power at the table. So you can then say, I am depressed, I am this, I am that, therefore let me into your argument. And the problem with that is, is A, why should the most interesting facet of your personality be the fact that you are depressed, mm. okay? Like, Nobody would want to be depressed, okay? That is not a pleasant state to be in. People don't get out of bed. They don't wash themselves. It's a deeply... It's an illness for a reason. Therefore, having this kind of desired state of illness to give yourself more status is a problem. And it's because we've started to merge... I know, okay. It's because we've started to merge language. That's it. Ah, okay. Stigma, stigma is not a big thing as we think it is. There's more, there's over, 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 um, everyone thinks they're being stigmatised. Are you? Mm. Yes. yes, thank Fair. you. I kind of could have just let her carry on. She's closed. <laughs> oh, it's great. Um, yeah, everything that Frankie has just said. Um, coming back to Piers's point about what does it mean to be normal uh, and uh, kind of putting that with what does it mean to be functioning. Um, Normal, I think, well, increasingly normal is to be abnormal in all the ways we've discussed today. But just that point that Frankie made earlier, I think, is so important. That it's, it, we should not be aspiring to a situation where it is normal to make allowances for people to become increasingly more ill. So if somebody is more anxious, or is too anxious to attend class, which I hear all the time, we now do email, webinar no. situations with them. That's not going to help. It's not going to make them any better. Um, and finally, one of the things I always say to my students um, when I'm teaching on a, a course called Literature in Question, um, which is about questioning all of these big topics in language, um, is that the epitaph on their gravestone, don't aspire for that to be depression yeah. or anxiety. Aspire for it to be curiosity or movement, something that doesn't fix you as what you are now, because in 10 years' time and in 50 years' time, you are not going to be this person. One point that I didn't make was that, um, and, and that you helpfully made, was that normal is a, a statement about socialization. So you're sort of, you're socializing to the norms and values of your culture. And it strikes me that a lot of uncertainty around what is normal is um, this statement about, about where we've lost the sense that there's something in society that's worth passing to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's, that can lead to all sorts of uncertainty. So that leads to a lot of uncertainty around raising children. So the, the, this project that I have as a parent, which is to teach these children what norms and values are, becomes a problem. And it becomes disrupted, and it becomes fraught. And then I'm supposed to uh, not follow my judgment, but defer to somebody else who wants me to follow all their values and so on. And then family life becomes this anxiety-invoking project of intensively trying to make sure that my children get enough words and all that sort of thing. Uh, and that's, uh, that's really unfortunate. It sucks the joy out of life. A lot of this is just sucking the joy out of life. And um, ways of codifying things to make life more livable. Um, I think that actually I'm not sure about that because it's, 
I think to say that to the normal response to conditions is to feel bad and to retreat, and we should make allowances for that retreat, I think is not necessarily helping. Um, it, uh, it, it, it seems to me to be a statement about the loss of broader movements, of collective movements that try to make work a better thing for everybody. So I'm, I'm sure, I think it's, it's potentially individualizing the problem. And what do we do? Yeah. We focus on problems beyond the self. Because the issue is beyond the self. Not think about your feelings so much. That is Yes, when I was younger, I remember I'm from a gen. I'm 30, um, and I and I, um, I when I was younger, people used to say when they were talking about like their their sexual mores and, and their identity, they would say, "Oh no, I don't like labels," and that used to be kind of the empowering thing. Whereas now we have a generation that craves the label. They, you know, their gender expression and their gender variance now has to come under one of the newly prescribable gender identities or non-binary identities. Um, what I find is that uh, I used to tell people, oh no, but labels can be very useful. You wouldn't want to buy a tin of beans if you didn't know what was inside it. Uh, now I find myself arguing against labels, and I think the reason that I have a stigma against some labels is because I have a stigma against people's self-indulgence. And I don't want to be necessarily invited into other people's wallowing. Nietzsche may have said that life is a struggle, but Liza Minnelli told us that life is a cabaret. <laughs> You can find out more about the festival by heading to our website at battleofideas.org.uk. To stay in touch with our work at the Academy of Ideas, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and sign up to the newsletter by following the link below this recording.